On Your Wavelength, a podcast on physics and publishing. We take you behind the scene of some of the most interesting work published in the Nature portfolio. We talk to the authors and to the editors and bring you the latest insights. Hello and welcome to On Your Wavelength. This is Ankita Nirban from Nature Reviews Physics and I'm joining you from London. Hi, and this is Cristiano Matricardi, and I'm, as always, joining from Berlin. So before we jump into this month's podcast, we actually want to hear from you, our listeners. Um, we started this podcast in the spring, and now we're on episode five, which is crazy. We talked about so many different topics and papers already. And we can see that lots of you are tuning in from across the world. But what we'd really like to know is hear your opinions on it. So yeah, of course, send us your of comments. <laughs> We really, really want to hear from your, your your feedback, your comments, your, you know, just even say hello to us. You can actually drop us an email on the uh, Nature Review Physics uh, mailbox is N-A-T-R-E-V-P-H-Y-S netrefis at nature.com or just on Twitter. We really would love to hear from you. So Ankita, what's what's new in London? Here in Berlin, winter is winter came. <laughs> Not this coming already, just because it's super cold. Yeah, it's definitely getting getting colder here as well. And I, I mean, relevant to the winter, of course, is the energy crisis. That's been a big topic of discussion here, um, because the price of gas has just com completely gone through the roof. And gas actually accounts for almost half of how our electricity is generated here. So that's going to impact a lot of people this winter for sure how like how's the situation in germany um regarding like the gas prices yeah just regarding energy in general just it's it's crazy just government is like send us uh, like an overview on how to um, spur energy in a house and and just guidelines to have less uh, consumption of ener energy electricity in general but normally here uh, here in germany is not too high the percentage of uh, of uh, electricity produced with natural gas is like only 27% is not so high but it's needed too low so even though they are actually implementing since few years now uh, a really it's called energiewende uh, i don't know if i pronounce it well in germany it's like literally uh, energy trans energy transition and they actually try to phase out uh, coal and nature and, and nuclear um energy sources uh by uh you know just and by 2030 they want only five percent of the energy comes that comes from uh no renewable energy sources so there's a lot of push but of course everyone is like freaking out either here because of the increasing of of uh of electricity and 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 bills in general so uh but of course it's not only to run our uh homes for and this big physics experiment like the particle accelerators needs a lot of energy and close to us is the CERN and large hydron collider and imagine that it uses 1.3 terawatt hours of electricity annually literally means it's uh, enough power to fuel 300,000 homes for a year in the United Kingdom can you believe it just only, only CERN. 
Yeah, I mean, obviously, yeah, CERN uses huge amounts of energy and actually even, you know, running sort of smaller physics labs and universities, um, if you want to keep your cryostats going and your experiments running, I think that energy crisis is definitely going to be felt by by physicists um, sort of all across Europe. But actually, I guess one benefit of CERN is that they, although based sort of, yeah, in Geneva between Switzerland and France, they do get most of their energy from France. And France has had a long focus on nuclear power for many years. So actually about 70% of their energy now comes from nuclear, which is obviously far greener than fossil fuels. But again, that then poses the obvious question of what do we do with like all the nuclear waste that's generated from these reactors? Yeah, this is, I think it's never ending uh, debate, political and social debate that it's, 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 it's not, I don't know. In Italy, I come from Italy, so just everyone is like concerned about nuclear waste and everything. But always, uh, still from Italy, from Turin, there's another startup, it's called Nucleo. Uh, it's in collaboration it's a, uh, with, with some other European um, university and research centers. And they are actually trying to develop a, a nuclear plant, a smaller nuclear plant, fourth generation, uh, so lead protected, um, <clears throat> that actually uh, run uh, by uh, uh, just using wastes, nuclear nuclear wastes. So just normal waste that comes from the mm, tens of um, nuclear plants that are in France, for example, can be used uh, to run the, uh, you know, this next generation uh, nuclear. So just they reduce a lot of the, the waste until a point where you, you cannot have no waste at all. But just it's something like we are moving in a direction to get a little bit more green solution to this problem. Yeah, definitely some more recycling, I guess. And I think nuclear physics is going to be an important direction of research just going forward into the future, like for the technological and energy reasons, but also just on a fundamental level as well. There's still so much we don't know about nuclear physics. And that's actually the topic of our podcast today. This month, we are discussing a paper that uh, study the shape of the nucleus. Of course, uh, but this we mean that the orbital of the um, orbitals of the atomic nuclei can actually take different shapes and these different shapes depends on the exact configuration of the nucleons that's interesting for me yeah and so most nuclei have specific shapes but there is a special case of this particular isotope of lead which actually has different orbital shapes that can coexist so our paper today was published in Communications Physics on the 12th of August by Yunas Ohala and colleagues. And it's aptly called Reassigning the Shapes of the O plus States in the 186 lead nucleus. And in this paper, the authors present a new experiment with higher sensitivity to probe these nuclear states. And it actually shows that the shapes that the different states have appear in a different order than was previously thought. So if you want to know more about this interesting work, just you stay tuned and after the jingle, the big story. Today, I'm very pleased to be joined by um, the corresponding author of this paper, Yane Pakarinen, and the editorial board member who oversaw the editorial process behind the paper on behalf of communications physics, who is Grigory Rogachev. So thank you both very much for joining us today on, on your wavelength. 
Um, please, would you introduce yourselves briefly? By all means, yeah. Thanks for the invitation. It's my pleasure to be here. So uh, my name is Janne Pakarinen, and I work at the University of Jyväskylä, Finland. Uh, more precisely, I work in the uh, nuclear spectroscopy team at the Department of Physics. And the department hosts an accelerator laboratory where our group performs about 10 experiments per year, which typically means about 100 days of beam on the target. So uh, my name is uh, Grigor Rogachev, and I'm an external uh, member of the editorial board uh, for the journal, and I work for uh, Texas A&M University. I'm a head of the Department of Physics and Astronomy, and also a member of the Cyclotron Institute. Uh, we have uh, two accelerators, and uh, it's a relatively big facility uh, for for the university nuclear physics facility. And I'm a nuclear physicist, experimental nuclear for energy. Great. So, Yane, uh, I'll start with you um, and ask you a little bit more to t about uh, your paper. So we know it's about the shapes of nuclei. Uh, can you tell us a bit more? I mean, of course, the main outcome already is set there in the title. So a brief answer to the what is the paper all about, it would be that uh, we have re reassigned the shapes of the seroplastates in the Lepan 86 nucleus. And if one wants to rephrase that slightly, we, we discuss about the shape coexistence. Uh, but there is, of course, there is more to the picture than meets the eye. And let me first give you maybe a little bit of background on the topic. So I think atomic nucleus could be considered as the smallest object which, for which a shape can be measured. Particles smaller than that are considered point-like object. And most often, nuclei are either spherical or quadrupole deformed. And if you consider quadrupole deformation, quite often we talk about prolate or oblate. Shape. In general terms, prolate shape resembles that of the rugby ball. So you can imagine that if you take a ball and you grab it from the poles and you start stretching, it becomes rugby ball shaped or cigar like shaped. Whereas oblate is a little bit like a disc like. So if you take from the poles and you start pushing the poles together, it becomes deformed and it's like a disc shape. We call it oblate in our terminology. So typically, these shapes can be associated with different configurations of protons and neutrons in the nucleus. And with a certain number of protons and neutrons, governing conditions can lead to competition between different configurations, or shapes, in other words. And if these configurations or shapes are mixed, we talk about coexistence. So con consequently, shape coexistence is a phenomenon in which the object possesses different shapes at the same time. This can be considered analogous to another famous physics example of a Schrodinger's cat, where the cat can be dead or alive at the same time. So coming back to LED-186 nucleus, which is arguably the most famous nucleus possessing shape coexistence, it's a unique in the sense that the three lower states are associated with different shapes. If Professor Schrodinger had a cat like that, he might find his pet shape dead lazy or animated at the same time. And our findings, now in contrast to earlier alpha decay fine structure experiment by Andreev and co-workers, saw that the shapes of the excited seroplastates or the states of the cat are reversed. So in addition to this finding, we performed the first direct measurement of the energies of the excited seroplastates. Of course, there were many more to the uh, 
picture like I mentioned earlier, but uh, maybe one should read the paper for. Gregory, what was your first impression of this paper when it landed on your desk? Oh, it was actually very exciting. So when I first uh, read it, it was uh, clear to me that, uh, that this is very nice, detailed piece of work, which uh, uh, would be very important to publish, actually. So I sort of thought, well, okay, <laughs> you know, this really looks great. So was this a result that was expected at all by you when you and your team set out to do these measurements? Or did it come as a surprise when while you were measuring for something else? Uh, well, to be honest, this was not a result that we were after. But on the other hand, the result is not surprising either. There is plenty of uh, theoretical predictions that actually predict exactly this kind of an ordering, considering these zeroplastates. We wanted to study the excited zeroplastates, that was obvious, but also the so-called interband transition. The interband tra interband transitions are transitions between the two different shapes and they allow for for example inferring the amount of mixing between the different configurations that are involved so if you want to draw a complete picture of a nucleus there is no single specific experimental approach that one could just use to and get the answer one needs to use different techniques each of which can give you maybe just a piece of information in a puzzle so what we used, we used combined in-pin spectroscopy, where we simultaneously measured gamma rays and conversion electrons that were emitted within a nanosecond after the production of the nucleus of interest. So you said that originally when you set up this experiment, it wasn't to look into the shapes and, you know, observe this reassignment. So what was your original aim? Um, well, one of the key objectives of this was to assess, for example, the monopole strengths between the zero plus states or between the two plus the two plus states or the four plus and four plus states. Of course, in order to get the mono, monopole strength out of the uh, experiment, one would need to know some of the lifetimes of the states or the uh, reduced transition strengths. Unfortunately, these are not known for these uh, non urast band states. By this, I mean the opalate band. So we had to use estimates that we have seen predicted by the TO. So the monopole strength would be a very nice uh, feature to uh, probe. The other thing we wanted to measure was, of course, the collectivity and maybe then also what is the mixing between these two different configurations. And are there sort of other results that came out from the experiment that didn't make it into this paper that are possibly going to be in other papers? <laughs> in fact, we actually ran, what actually went into the paper was one uh, week of beam on target. So we actually did two weeks. We used two different reactions and the other uh, data was not as good. It was from a different uh, reaction. So we decided that it would not be of the same quality that would allow us to extract better information. And I think this is making it clear also that uh, how difficult this nucleus is to produce. And this can be understood from the paper, as I said. But one of the other surprising thing for me was that how, how much amount of digging it was needed to get the result out. And that was a little bit of a surprise.
And maybe I should mention here that the experiment was actually conducted only already 2013. And uh, for last few years, my PhD student, Jonas Ojala, who is the first author of the paper, he did an excellent job in sorting the data to find this famous needle in the haystack. And then after that, of course, the data had to be understood, which meant enormous amount of fitting and deconvolution of the gamma ray and electron energy spectra that we had obtained. And I, if I recall correctly, the electron energy spectrum meant the fitting of close to 150 different components in that. And after this, we started analyzing, and here my mentor, Rauno Julin, professor, now Emeritus, was strongly involved, and he provided immense input for the interpretation of the data. So in the end of the day, after all these efforts, I think the uh, preparation of the manuscript as such was fairly easy. <laughs> Wow, so it was only a week's worth of data, but then years, basically, of analysis to actually get the information out. Yeah, sometimes it just happens to be like this in our field. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, I, I, I can, can confirm, absolutely. Sometimes you get the results fast, but sometimes it takes years and years, absolutely. <laughs> so... If um, the data analysis is such a big and time-consuming part of the process, is machine learning something that's at all going to be useful for this? Or how do you see that fitting in in the next maybe five or 10 years? So this is actually the question that we discuss a lot. And uh, in fact, we use machine learning uh, for certain parts of the analysis. So what machine cannot do is machine learning cannot really think for you, right? So essentially we use machine learning uh, to do uh, some sort of me mechanical tasks, uh, like uh, uh, where we try to, so if you have a signal that is noisy, for example, just one example, then you can teach uh, this machine learning algorithms how to identify the noise from the signal and sort of extract the signal from the noise. That's one application. Um, Another application may be certain image recognitions. And, and in my field, we um, have time projection chambers, which uh, produce tracks, essentially the 3D view uh, of the reaction. And you can teach uh, the machine how to recognize the tracks um, in, in, this, in the scattering chambers. So uh, these things can be done. What machine learning cannot do is to get to the physics result. <laughs> no, of so course. I think for that we still need scientists. So. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So Gregory, um, how was the process of finding referees? Is it a is it a big field? Um, are there lots of experts working on this at the moment, or was it quite a challenge to find? You know, I guess three independent referees to look at this paper. Well, it's, uh, I wouldn't say it's a very large field, uh, but uh, we have a good number of uh, uh, physicists who are in nuclear physics who are working on this uh, problem of generally uh, nuclear shapes and, and also more specifically shape coexistences. It wasn't very difficult to find. I tried to find referees from definitely different groups, uh, certainly from different continents. Um, uh, and uh, make sure that uh, uh, the referees uh, are quite diverse group. Uh, and uh, I, I was very happy to see that, that all of them were very much impressed with the work uh, uh, as much as uh, I was. And, uh, you know, the exciting thing about this work was the combining the 
techniques that uh, Yanni already mentioned, and uh, measuring gamma rays and also the conversion electrons is, is very good. And in one sort of experiment, um, that was a very important idea. How closely related is it to uh, the work we're talking about today? Well, I'm doing experiments in low energy, in low energy nuclear physics uh, um, and interested in nuclear structure. And in this sense, of course, uh, what I do is uh, uh, related to uh, to Yanis' work. Uh, but um, there is a significant difference. I am focusing mostly on structure of uh, light uh, nuclei uh, with uh, masses normally less than 40, um, more typically less than 20. Uh, and I'm looking for resonances uh, which undergo very different decay modes. They do not decay by gamma rays or electron-physitron emission or electron conversion. In, instead, they decay by neutrons or protons. Um, and uh, so in this sense, my um, my experiments look very different uh, from, from Yanis. Uh, but uh, still, I'm quite interested in the subject matter presented by, by Yanis. So, as I mentioned before, you're an editorial board member for Communications Physics. And I should say now for our listeners that Communications Physics works slightly differently to the other uh, nature journals we've uh, featured so far on this podcast, in that they, in addition to their in-house editors, also have an editorial board who uh, take editorial uh, responsibilities from time to time. So, Gregory, could you tell us a bit more about what that involves, uh, being a member of the editorial board and sort of your motivation for doing this? Uh, well, Yelena uh, Belsol, who is chief editor uh, for the journal, uh, contacted me about that after I sent her one of my reviews. <laughs> and uh, she asked me to join the board or asked me if, if I'm interested. Uh, so um, I considered that and it wasn't a lot. I didn't uh, make this decision lightly because it adds uh, a little bit uh, to, to the already <laughs> quite busy schedule. Um, uh, but I decided to do that because uh, it, it really gives you a different perspective. Um, uh, so now, you know, I'm, I'm on the other side. Uh, and uh, so I always submitted papers to the journal. But uh, being on the other side, uh, is quite interesting. Uh, it gives you insights, uh, and it also gives you sort of a better view of the field. So normally, I wouldn't be reading uh, some papers that that I'm reading now right, during the review process. Um, so uh, and uh, so that gives me an opportunity to uh, um, know my field even better than uh, than I did before. So this is going to be a question to both of you, um, but perhaps I'll start with you, Yane. Um, what are the big exciting questions in nuclear physics uh, for the next five or 10 years that you're looking forward to working on? Uh, of course, personally, this is very intriguing topic. What I've been doing now, I will certainly continue uh, our program that deals with this shape coexistence and collectivity in this neutron deficient lead region. Uh, I'm keen to prepare new instrumentation so that we could maybe one day get there where we could measure the lifetimes of these theoroplastates directly. So this is my personal uh, niche, if you like. <laughs> Would you say that at the moment, um... 
because you mentioned uh, developing new instrumentation, is it sort of instrumentation and techniques that are the bottleneck or are there also a lot of theory problems that need to be solved? Yeah, I have to say that, that, like we pointed in the paper, that there are lots of theories that are actually predicting these different shapes. However, the spectroscopic, spectroscopic quality may be a little bit lacking. So, for example, they cannot reproduce, reproduce the uh, level energies very nicely. In, some, in many cases, they even fail to reproduce the ordering of the levels. And this this can change from nucleus to nucleus. We, we look at the neighboring nuclei. It can quite easily change or quite quickly change their how, how well the uh, theoretical calculations can predict these phenomena. So there is still plenty to investigate. And indeed, they probably need more experimental input in order to develop better and string, more string tech tests for the, uh, the theories. Okay, so I guess we need sort of a productive feedback loop from both sides to Indeed. better our understanding. Okay, and Gregory, what would what, what would you say are the most exciting yeah, would, questions for you? Yeah, I, I would say, I would say that really we are um, in nuclear physics. We are at a very exciting junction um, because uh, we are finally uh, getting into the predicting properties of atomic nuclei from basic principles, from from uh, nucleon-nucleon interactions, essentially trying to not introduce but, uh, additional parameters, right? So uh, we have great theoretical development, uh, which allows us hopefully at the end to build the um, unified theory of atomic nucleus and uh, experimental verification, uh, experimental benchmarking uh, of uh, those uh, new theoretical developments are critically important at this stage. Uh, combining uh, what we used to do, the structure calculations with nuclear reaction calculations, those were completely separate fields. Now I hope that uh, with the new developments and the uh, new experimental benchmarks, we can really combine these two disjoint fields and, and uh, make uh, accurate predictions from first principles, not only related to nuclear structure, but also nuclear reactions. Um, important, uh, another important aspect uh, is the connection of nuclear physics and nuclei to the cosmos, to, to, to astrophysics, right? Because lots of processes that are happening in stellar environments, they are nuclear processes, nuclear reactions, nuclear decays. And to understand those better and to understand the synthesis of uh, uh, chemical elements uh, in the universe, abundances of chemical elements in the universe and the dynamics of stellar development. We often need um, information from nuclear physics. In fact, lots of information from nuclear physics. This will be another big field uh, that I see will be developing into the future. Another important aspect is fundamental interactions, right? So um, nuclear physics, in fact, uh, can hopefully can give us access uh, to completely new physics, physics beyond the standard model. The physics that we're looking for uh, at CERN, for example, right? Uh, but here in nuclear physics, we can do, in principle, tabletop or almost tabletop experiments and get access to the information that um, people at CERN uh, uh, have hard time getting to. 
You know, uh, for that we need very accurate measurements. For that we certainly need better models. We need better equipment. But we're working on that, and I see that nuclear physics can contribute in this direction as well. So uh, I would say that now is a very exciting time to be. Yeah, it looks like there's lots of interesting connections to be made across different fields as well. Yeah, absolutely.